When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, where we're discussing critical care and its pharmacotherapy in a fun and entertaining manner. Each episode, we summarize the available evidence, discuss controversial issues, and provide practical take-home points with a subject matter expert. I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you may be listening, thank you. Now, today we are joined by a special guest and friend of the pod, Anthony Hawkins. Now, Anthony is a graduate from the University of Georgia and completed two years of residency specializing in critical care at Emory University Hospital in Atlanta. Anthony is a board-certified critical care pharmacist. Currently, is a critical care faculty member at UGA and a member of the UGA Critical Care Collaborative, or UGA-C3. Anthony also holds a faculty appointment with the Medical College of Georgia. And he was gracious enough to lend his expertise and time on today's topic, fluid stewardship. Anthony, thank you so much for joining. Hey, man, glad to be here. I appreciate it. Now, Anthony and I, we've known each other for a few years now. You know, he was the Emory critical care resident the year before me. So there's a great story about the first time that we met. So I think, do you want me to tell it or should you tell it? I think you tell it and I give my perspective kind of an input at the end. Uh, I almost feel like it's more dramatic and exciting when you, when you tell it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You want me to tell it? I can definitely, I can do that and you can fill it in. So I'm interviewing for the PGY2 critical care position down in Atlanta and for all the residents, and I think you know everyone can agree when you're on an interview, especially a residency interview, oh, I would do and say just about anything if it meant that I was going to get the residency. And so it was around lunchtime. I think it was we had about 90 minutes, and part of it was you were going to do a tour, and then the other half we were going to eat. Um, and I remember we went to the, the neurocritical care unit at Emory had just been redone and it was really fancy and had this awesome like lecture room. So Anthony went in there and was just showing me everything. He loved it. You could see that he was like a teacher very early on, but you could also tell that time management um, might not have been his number one strength because we looked down at our watch and there was like five minutes left. So Anthony was like casually oh, you know, there's like a great row of vending machines. Like, let's, we'll just get something from there. <laughs> and I got a ham sandwich from the vending machine, ate it real quick, went in, went in for like the next, the next part of the, of the interview, right? And that, that, so that's your, that's your perspective? You don't have anything else on that? Uh, other than the fact that I found out later that you absolutely hate ham sandwiches. <laughs> um, but that was absolute shocking to me because you were nothing but smiles when you were eating it <laughs> that's an absolute I guess, fact I guess between the ham i guess between the ham sandwich and the hot pocket that might have been the best option <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm team turkey all the way that's a hill I'm, I'm willing to die on so that's that's true and it turns out that i think everyone found out that i ate a vending machine sandwich and was like wow this guy will do anything let's let's sign him up so in the end of the day i would do it 10 times out of 10 again 
Now, you live in a town called Albany. It's technically Albany. That's how I like to say it. Albany, Georgia. It's a small town about three hours away from Atlanta. So what do you like to do for fun out there? Man, they, it's what they call the good life city, also known as Small Benny. So everybody knows everybody. Um, so you're, it's very quick to make friends here. So lots of social things to do, a lot of outdoor activities. So most folks that um, know me, I mean, I, I love to hunt. So right now we're right in the heart of deer season. So I just got back from a five-day vacation from chasing whitetails, um, actually just outside of Atlanta. And now back to work. But lots of hunting, lots of fishing, some disc golf, turkey hunting, and shooting my bow. How how cold was it there? Because, you know, this morning it got into the teens for me out here, and I was very cold just walking 10 minutes. And you are standing or hiding in fields for hours. I mean, are you freezing? <laughs> uh, I mean, luckily I've had several years practice, so I'd dress for the occasion so to speak but um I, I think yesterday it was i don't know i think 30 34 35 degrees with 16 mile an hour winds so we had somewhere around the same temperature after accounting for wind chill yikes okay <laughs> so i think we need to establish something before we start so do you dislike all fluids or is this one of those where you're walking in the room you have your hands up and you're kind of saying i come in peace um, I don't mind. I definitely don't dislike all fluids. Um, there may be one that I'm extremely impartial to, but fluids in general, I don't mind. I just despise the ignorant or ill-informed or even like the knee-jerk use of IV fluids just because that's the way it's always been done, so to speak. I mean, I'm talking to someone who literally turned off his own maintenance IV fluids in the hospital at one point. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely true. <laughs> so... Today we're focusing on fluid stewardship, but I think before we even dive into that, you know, how is fluid overload even defined? Um, so it depends on what papers you look at. Um, there are a little bit more objective um, ways to define fluid overload. Um, you know, people talk about positive fluid balance, fluid overload. Um, fluid overload can be defined more objectively if a patient received at least fluids that, were, that would contribute to at least a 10% weight gain in their body weight from admission. Um, and then there's also um, general laboratory or radiologic findings that would be suggestive. So some, um, some, some papers may use that definition either by chest x-ray or physical exam, et cetera. So explain to us what you mean by received enough fluids to account for that change. Like, how would we know? Um, so let's say my... Admission body weight is 70 kilograms. If I received at least seven liters of fluid, um, not necessarily that I would increase my body weight by seven, um, by seven kilos or 10%, but I at least received that much fluid that could, in, that could um, expect a 10% increase in body weight. Okay, so one liter of fluid, in theory, represents one kilo of body weight Should, or water weight. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there have been quite a few kind of recent publications about this, you know, issue of fluid stewardship or problem of, you know, kind of preventing patients from being fluid overload. But give us an overview of a summary of why 
fluid overload is so bad for patients? Like, what are some complications that might occur because these patients get fluid? Yeah, well, I mean, I think first and foremost, we know that fluid overload is bad. Um, the problem is we really suck at preventing it from happening because we don't, we're not judicious up front with the fluids that we give. Um, and so hopefully, you know, we'll talk more about that as we can go on how to be a little bit more proactive rather than reactive to that. Um, but fluid overload has been shown to um, increase the need for interventions like thoracentesis, paracentesis, the need for diuretics, ultrafiltration. Uh, folks tend to spend longer time on the ventilator in the ICU. Uh, one of the earlier papers showed that folks that um, had fluid overload at ICU discharge were actually less likely to be discharged home from the ICU and more likely to be discharged to like a skilled nursing facility or inpatient rehab. Um, they're less likely to be able to perform ADLs um, independently. Um, a lot of concern in the surgical world for impaired wound healing and um, causing anastomotic leaks. Uh, surprisingly, fluid overload can cause, it can be a causative factor for acute kidney injury. And then the one thing we are always, um, we always hate to hear is that it contributes to mortality. Um, several studies, most of them retrospective in nature, have shown that fluid overload contributes to increased mortality. The problem is that um, there's always the question of the underlying, underlying um, com confounding factor of severity of illness. I mean, naturally, sicker patients are probably going to require more fluids. And so maybe it's not the fluid itself, um, but rather the underlying um, degree of illness. But certainly, certainly an issue. I think commonly in practice, you know, someone will see a, you know, a drastic put or the pressure drops just a little bit. So I think reflexively, we may administer fluid, right, thinking that it's actually helping or could help the problem when in reality, kind of based on what you're telling me is it can not only worsen the problem you have, but it can then have a major downstream effect. Yeah, that's a conversation that I, a lot of times we'll have with uh, my intensivist is, oh, you're an output down, so let's, you know, just reflex, give them fluids, um, when in fact fluids could either already be causing the problem or it could at least contribute, make it worse. Um, depending on the etiology of the decreased urine output or the AKI, so to speak, um, renal edema, um, a lot more literature is coming out about the prevalence of intra-abdominal hypertension and abdominal compartment syndrome which um, they, would, they would show up, they would, they would show themselves as a pre-renal AKI um, when in, I mean, it is, but it's, it's due to a volume overload um, problem, just poor renal perfusion. So you bring up a really good point of being proactive versus reactive. It kind of all goes back to this issue that you were talking about of why we know this. And I mean, I felt like you, you could have filled up a chalkboard like in the beginning of a Simpsons episode with all of the complications, morbidity, and even mortality concerns that have happened. We know all of this, but yet it's still happening. So why is that the case? Uh, fluid overload. I mean, so yeah, so I mean, we know it happens. It's just a matter of how, how, why does it happen knowing that we don't like it? Uh, certainly fluid, I mean, we give people boluses of fluid. Um, I would say a lot of times that's probably okay, especially um, like in the emergency department when they're acutely hemodynamically unstable, you know, that's fine. 
Um, but the problem, uh, the fluids that we don't necessarily account for or we don't intentionally administer or thoughtfully administer um, are maintenance IV fluids. We don't really know where those fit into therapy in most ICU patients. Um, and then one that really falls by the wayside um, is hidden fluids. So you're talking about, I mean, just the fluid that's associated with IV piggybacks um, or continuous infusions. And even what people don't realize is even when you're giving an IV push medication, you still have to give, you know, a saline flush before and after. Um, and depending on how many meds you're giving um, and at what different intervals, you know, if you're staggering them, um, all of that stuff can significantly add up. Um, in fact, our the UGAC3 group, we have actually um, done a couple uh, studies, and we've seen that ICU patients up to day three and up to day seven even, for up 40 to 60% of the total fluids that patients receive during that time frame in their ICU comes strictly from hidden fluids, not even stuff that we know that we're giving the patient. My head just shot up like I um, just heard someone yell my name across the street because you're telling me that the, you have data that says over 50% of the fluids patients get are unintentional. It's nothing that we ordered with the intent of giving that extra fluid. Wow, that is, that's a lot. That's way more than I was expecting, actually. Um, I was going to say, I mean, when you're thinking about just the sheer volume of fluid we're giving as hidden fluids, and then these providers also want to give maintenance fluids for, you know, whatever indication, good or bad, I mean, you're basically giving twice the amount of maintenance fluids. You're just, you know, unintentionally not, not realizing it. The, you know, you mentioned that fluid, the like initial fluid boluses and those types of things are, are probably for the most part, okay. That might not be where the, where the problem lies. So it sounds like a lot of it is probably a combination of the hidden IV fluids and the maintenance IV fluids. So do you think, you know, one of the answers is like, do you think there's a way to have a, um, like a, like a nurse driven or a, you know, um, team driven, you know, titration of, you know, maintenance IV fluids, you know, almost like, you know, volume based enteral nutrition, you know, um, protocols or, you know, one to one urine output replacement where they kind of change it based on that. Do you think those are, those could be solutions at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, it first brings to question how often maintenance IV fluids are actually warranted. Um, but I have experience, um, both as a resident and where I am now with, nurse-driven titration, um, both good and bad experiences. Um, I think the, you know, the textbook answer that everybody hates to hear is that it, it needs to be, you know, individualized or patient-specific. Um, you know, a one-to-one -one ratio, um, you know, may be right, but it may not be right. So, you know, you may be titrating your um, maintenance fluids, not necessarily to urine output, um, or maybe to urine output, but that urine output may be different. You know, you may have a patient uh, with rhabdo, with AKI, or tumor lysis syndrome, or you're targeting methotrexate clearance, um, or urine pH, maybe for an aspirin toxicity or something. Um, so you may be using maintenance, maintenance IV fluids that are truly indicated, um, but your titration parameter may be different. Um, and then you also have to take into account the patient's volume status when you initiate maintenance fluids. Um, you know, you may have somebody with a high output fistula, uh, ureteral stent, um, chest tubes immediately after um, a cabbage or, you know, whatever they may have undergone, 
Um, so it may be a one to one ratio, maybe a 0.5 to one, maybe even a two to one. Um, so it really just depends what your starting point is and what's the indication. So are there specific patients or patient populations that may be more at risk for becoming fluid overloaded? And I think, you know, I'm sure we'll go over this, but, you know, there's there's classic patient populations I think all of us know, but, you know, maybe there are some others that we might, you know, commonly forget or not initially think of as being at risk. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll just, you know, upfront disclaimer, I do not work with a population of surgical um, ICU patients, um, but I think anybody that comes from the OR, I think pre-op, a lot of intra-op um, fluid balance, um, estimated blood loss versus fluids given um, in the OR um, is very important to, to be uh, aware of. I think those patients are probably at risk. Um, any patient, I think, that's probably not diuretic naive, um, you run into diuretic resistance, um, whether you're trying to diurese them or let them auto-diurese. Um, I think the issue that I brought up earlier with hidden fluids, and so some of our key contributors that we found, I mean, anybody on multiple um, continuous infusions, you think you know, heparin infusions, bicarb drips, any vasoactive infusions. Um, we actually found that the two largest contributors of volume um, related to hidden fluids was bicarb drips and, and vancomycin. Um, so anybody that is getting a lot of what we would deem to be hidden fluids is at risk. Um, patients requiring lots of blood products um, or even those that may not get a lot of hidden fluids at once, but just have, you know, longer ICU stays, you're more chronically critically ill patients. Um, just those folks that are at risk for um, accumulation of those hidden fluids over time. So, I mean, long story short, everyone. <laughs> the, the, the population that stands out to me, you know, I think all of them are, those are really great points, but the, the one that really stood out to me is the, the patients who are not diuretic naive, because you're right, those always become a, a challenge to get that extra fluid off, but you don't necessarily know until it's been day three and they're still somehow net positive and you're trying to figure out why, or not at their goal, you know, net negative goal. Yeah, and I think that brings up a good point on rounds is that we need to have a set goal. We don't, we don't just want to say, oh, well, let's give them 40 Elasix today um, because that 40 Elasix could be very different for me versus a patient that's been on 80 of Elasix at home, et cetera. And so instead of saying, let's give 40 Elasix, let's, let's get this patient two liters negative today. And so if we want to give them Elasix now, then maybe let's reassess in you know, four to six hours to see if, our, if we need to give another dose with its higher or just repeat it or give it more frequently, et cetera. So um, I, think, I think that's a, definitely a key thing to be aware of. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now, I think a lot of, of fluid that's um, given in the ICU is typically, you know, uh, thinking that patients need fluid, whether that's due to hypotension or kind of the treatment of that pre-renal AKI that we kind of briefly touched on earlier. So what tools do we have available you know, to determine if patients are fluid responsive? 
yeah, so first I would definitely say be careful um, or be cautious with the term pre-renal AKI because, like I said earlier, there are several different disease states that may show up or come masked as pre-renal AKI, which are actually flu- you know, fluid is the, is the causative factor. Um, how would you, how would you to refer help? to it? I'm sorry for interrupting, but how would you refer to it then, or does it kind of depend yeah, I mean, because pre-renal AKI can be volume-dependent or perfusion-dependent, and so I think that's one of the key factors. You know, somebody may come in with sepsis, and they may be volume-depleted, so it would be a volume-dependent pre-renal AKI, but somebody that has um, intra-abdominal hypertension or, you know, hepatorenal or cardiorenal syndrome, they also have a pre-renal AKI, but it's perfusion-dependent. They got tons of volume on board. They just can't get it to their kidneys. That is an incredible point. We need to shout that from the rafters. That pre-renal AKI does not always need fluid. That's perfect. Okay, can continue. That was a really good point. Um, so I think back to your question: What can we use to determine if a patient needs fluids um, or not? Um, and I think you know, talking about fo- volume responsiveness, um, dynamic versus static markers. We can go into you know passive leg raise or fluid challenge. Um, I think point-of-care ultrasound like bedside echo is becoming more and more popular. Um, Stroke volume variation. I use a lot of pulse pressure variation. Um, Now, all of those are dynamic examples. I didn't really mention anything static like central venous pressure because I think we can pretty much all agree that they're pretty outdated and uh, maybe useless as in just looking at the absolute value. Maybe looking at trends to dictate goals of goals of treatment from day to day um, may be reasonable, but otherwise pretty terrible. Now, what are some um, limitations or things to keep in mind when you're talking about some of those um, dynamic ways of kind of monitoring a patient's, you know, volume or fluid status? Yeah, I think that's a great question. There's, I mean, obviously, you know, I just listed a bunch and all of them, I'm not going to bore you with the details with all of the specific limitations for each. Um, but a lot of them were validated um, with very specific vent settings, you know, um, at least eight cc's per kilo tidal volumes, um, non-spontaneous breathing. So patients have to be intubated with no patient initiated breath. Um, there's also clinical scenarios, you know, just various different patient specific factors, um, sustained arrhythmias, open chest, Um, If a patient, you know, if a patient has abdominal compartment syndrome, a passive leg raise is going to be useless in that person as well. Make sure the patients that you're using it in fit the patients that validated these um, tools. That makes sense. So what are some of what are some of some options for places or um, hospitals that may be a little more resource limited? And what I mean there is like, for example, you know, stroke volume variation is a is a way to dynamically measure these things, but that requires a vigileo monitor, for example. And, you know, not everyone might not have, you know, everyone might not have access to these tools. So what are some suggestions or strategies that, that they might be able to use? Uh, yeah, I think that's a great question. It's something that's very important. I mean, even, you know, at our hospital, um, we have float, you know, we have flow tracks here, but we have only a certain number of them. And um, it's very common for our intensivists to say that, you know, they only want to hook, they only want to use the flow track to monitor folks that are, quote, tenuous, you know, or at highest risk for decompensation. So they don't, as long as they deem them, you know, they're, oh, their heart, they're not a renal patient or a heart, fail, you know, they don't have heart failure. So I'm not worried about their fluids. They'll, they can handle it. 
Um, so, you know, we don't, we don't have as many flow tracks to put them on everybody as we'd like. Um, but if you think of stroke volume variation, I mean, it's really the area under the curve for their, you know, for their um, waveform on their arterial lines. Um, and so, you know, that's a fancy way to do it that needs a lot of calculation, et cetera. But what I find myself doing a lot of times in patients that we don't have hooked up, they still, if, you know, if I'm concerned about fluids um, and fluid balance, um, I will just go in there that typically they have an arterial line already placed. Um, and so I can go just to the monitor at the bedside and I can zoom in on the waveform, um, make sure that you have your systolic and diastolic parameters optimized um, on the little field of view that you're looking at. And you can kind of eyeball the pulse pressure. You know, it's just the, obviously the difference in, the, in your um, peak systolic and your diastolic. And if you look at that, the peaks and the valleys in comparison to their respiratory cycle, um, a lot of folks would say that if you can visualize a difference in the pulse pressure from inspiration to expiration, then there's at least a 10 to 15% variation there. So they're probably fluid responsive. And so a lot of times I'll find myself just zooming, you know, going at the patient's bedside, zooming in on the A-line um, and kind of eyeballing their, their pulse pressure variation to determine, you know, if, if we can at least turn the fluids off, but sometimes also maybe, to encourage them to maybe give an additional bolus if they're already on pressors and still unstable, et cetera. Pharmacists rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty. I love that. That is a, that's a, like a trick you only learn on the job. So uh, appreciate sharing that. Now, does fluid responsiveness or, you know, you, you see a variable on a patient that looks like they'll be fluid responsive. Does that mean that we should just be giving boluses or fluid until they are not like how, how should we be using these variables? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. Um, the, the answer is definitely no, just because a patient there, um, you know, the data on the, at the bedside says that they are volume responsive doesn't mean they need volume. You know, you and I, we live at the lower end of Frank Starling curve. So you and I have some cardiac reserve, right? If you give me fluid, my heart will respond and it will increase its cardiac output. If there's no reserve, I'm in trouble, right? The difference, though, is that I'm hemodynamically stable. Hopefully I'm diary, you know, I'm making good urine output today. And so I don't have, there's no clinical correlation between my volume responsiveness and my physical presence, right? Whereas other folks, um, you know, in the ICU, if you see that their, their data suggests they're volume responsive, then turn around and look at the patient and see if, um, if there's any clinical correlation there. Another thing that I was just thinking of for um, folks that may be limited on resources, um, or even if they're still old, kicking it old school and they're using CVP, um, there's some data to suggest that you could either do a passive leg raise um, or a small 250 or 500 cc fluid challenge and instead of looking at a change in cardiac output, you can look at their delta CVP from before and after, or even their delta in tidal CO2. So just depending on, you know, what kind of your practice is already and what numbers you already have at your disposal. That is getting practical because you just gave us advice to turn a, hmm, you would argue a coin flip test, right? 50-50 chance of being right to something that could be helpful. Um, a, a jack of all trades here. Now, I think most of us listening can ag can agree now that fluid overload is bad. We need to prevent it. Now, the whole kind of topic of today is fluid stewardship. Now, can you describe, I guess, what that means? I think all of us have heard of 
antibiotic stewardship. You know, we may have heard of factor stewardship, thinking about the PCCs, but fluid stewardship is a is a new term to me. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, very similar to antibiotics. Um, and, you know, one of the biggest reasons that antibiotic stewardship came up and we um, in a in a paper that we just wrote about fluid stewardship, we actually cited the original paper that coined the term antibiotic stewardship because it's really the same premise. You use early aggressive antibiotics, probably overkill, and then you have significant downstream effects. Um, the difference is when do, when do those downstream effects occur? You know, with with antibiotics, you're talking about three six months down the road, and multi-drug resistant organisms and it's from something you did poorly you know several months ago um, whereas fluids you may see the impact of poor fluid or aggressive um, liberal use of fluids when a patient um, you know first presented um, either to the ICU to the emergency department it's um, what have you um, but then it's you know day three day four day five that you're having difficulty weaning from the ventilator um, you're starting to now talk about, do we need to get renal involved? And it's really easy to contribute, oh, their kidneys suck, or we can't get them off the ventilator for all these other reasons. Oh, they have underlying COPD, some interstitial lung disease. Um, they had, you know, CKD stage two at baseline, or they've been on vancomycin, when in fact it could have easily been, you know, the nine liters of fluid we gave them in their first 36 hours of um, presentation. You know, all the stewardship things you talked about is in, are important, but I think what you're, how I'm interpreting what you're saying is we may see the effects of fluid overload much more sooner than other similar stewardship kind of programs or initiatives. Is that is that a correct interpretation? Yeah, ex- exactly. Now, there was a phrase that was first discussed in 2015, and it was a, issued, it's a phrase or an acronym. It's the four D's. So give us a little, a little history lesson, a trip down memory lane here, and what does this phrase mean and kind of where did it originate? Uh, yeah, so some folks um, out of Europe, I think Belgium actually, um, they published a paper, the four Ds of fluid stewardship, um, and they associated it specifically to septic shock, and, but it was, again, it was related to fluids. It's the, the four Ds are the drug, the dose, the duration and the de-escalation. And so drug, you know, they're talking about type of fluid, um, tonicity, maybe the ingredients, crystalloid, colloid, blood products, et cetera. Um, the dosing of fluids, what rate do you run it at? How much do you give for how long? And then duration, you know, how long? Um, and then de-escalation. De-escalation is a little bit misleading nomenclature because with de-escalation, I don't know if you should just be more con- keep giving fluid, but give it more conservatively. Do you stop giving it altogether, or now is it time to start taking it back and start diuresing, um, you know, or mechanically um, removing the fluid? Now, I want to ask you a question from the duration section of the paper. You know, the authors describe that we should be administering early, adequate, and late conservative fluids. What's your interpretation of that phrase? Um, I think... I think, and we may talk about this later. Is the it it kind of correlates with the Rose model, where when somebody early, when somebody first presents, you want to, you know, you don't want to go by the wayside and give them, you know, like with beta blockers. Um, I teach, you know, I teach students with beta blockers, um, just like you learn to use glue in kindergarten, just a dot, not a lot, right? Start low and go slow, but with fluids on the front end you 
probably want to be more aggressive, at least in the first minutes, right? I don't want to, I don't want to bolus someone with only 250 mLs or give them 250 mLs at 100 cc's an hour. I probably want to give them 500 cc's, maybe even a liter, depending on what their clinical situation is. And then I'll use my um, fluid responsiveness to type, you know, to kind of fine tune or tailor how much fluid I'm giving them. But once you get past that early resuscitation phase, you know, in the first six to eight, maybe 12 hours, um, then you should probably be thinking that fluids aren't the answer and you need to be looking to other, you know, vasoactives, et cetera, um, and start thinking that, um, you know, the fluids I'm giving now are probably going to end up causing the iatrogenic harm. So it sounds like the concept of, of 4Ds really kind of emphasizes that we should be treating fluids like medications. They have really distinct indications and properties that, you know, may make them advantageous or in some areas harmful. And then we kind of need to think about not only the fluids themselves, but how to administer them. So they, you know, during the typical time course of septic shock, there are there are four distinct dynamic phases of fluid therapy. And, you know, you mentioned the ROSE model, that kind of acronym. So walk us through ROSE as first described in 2014 and, and kind of questions that maybe we might be asking ourselves or our team kind of as the as the this theoretical patient is going through those the, the typical time course. Uh, yeah, so the ROSE model is, um, it's like, it's four phases of fluid administration. Um, it was first, again, like you said, it was kind of related to septic shock because everybody loves to talk about sepsis. Um, and so ROSE is rescue, optimization, stabilization, and evacuation. So the rescue, I mean, and so if you think of it on a, um, on the x-axis, you have your, you have time course, and on the y-axis, you have volume administered. And so if you, when you think of the rescue phase, you're thinking just the very first several minutes, maybe up to an hour of patient presentation. Again, this is where you're just giving them a leader so that you can get your feet under you, figure out what's going on, get a little bit more information because all you see in front of you is a map of, you know, 55. Um, so maybe give them some, maybe give them some fluids to very quickly rescue the patient. Um, so again, that's over just over minutes. And then you come to the optimization phase and this is over minutes and maybe even several hours where you are really trying to fine tune your volume status, right? I've already given 500 lead CCs, maybe a liter, liter and a half very quickly. Um, but now I'm using my numbers and some metrics for volume responsiveness to really optimize the patient's volume status. Um, so what we typically, you know, the term we normally hear in practice is resuscitation and resuscitation is act is, Really, it's normally collectively the rescue and the optimization phases that, that collectively make, make uh, resuscitation. Then you have the stabilization phase where you've already achieved euvolemia, and so now you're just trying not to, not to rock the boat, right? This is where de-escalation may, may occur. You may not start um, diuresing the patient, but you may stop giving so much fluids, right? Late conservative fluid therapy. Um, so stabilizing the patient, patient, trying to achieve maybe a net neutral, maybe even a net negative fluid balance every day. Um, so that occurs over hours to days. And then we get to E, the evacuation phase. And so this phase is where you are actively trying to remove fluids, right? Trying to achieve um, overall euvolemia, right? You're trying to achieve a 
total um, fluid balance over the course of their ICU stay of zero, um, where you're trying to diurese off all the stuff that you've already crammed into them in the first several days. So evacuation phase can take days. It can take up to weeks, um, you know, that patients are auto-diuresing or, um, you know, that you're helping fluid, uh, remove fluid over the, over the next um, several weeks. So it could be a long time course. So within kind of the stabilization phase, that's where I guess that this would, would occur. I think more often than not, um, a lot of times people, patients who you know, are on you know, maybe one vasopressor, it's not a really low dose, but it's not like a high dose either. It's kind of, you know, middling along. And so, you know, a lot of times you may think, oh, I, you know, let's give some fluids for, you know, systolic or MAP effects. Um, is that... Is that an okay practice? Are we doing it wrong? You know, what should we be doing in, in that kind of phase by, by giving fluids for pressure? Um, I think, you know, if, you're in, if you think you're in the stabilization phase and you have somebody that's still on vasopressors, you know, maybe a small to moderate dose, um, I would start to look for – I definitely would not just assume that it's a fluid problem and start giving fluids. Um, I'd be a little bit more inclined to say, is this patient – um, adrenally suppressed, you know, maybe we need a, a spot cortisol level. Are we already out of the window of, um, you know, of acute flagrant septic shock? And maybe you want to do a stem test. We normally don't do that in my practice, but we will do spot cortisol levels, you know, with morning labs uh, when we would expect it to peak. And if that's normal, we maybe, you know, maybe we've already checked thyroid levels or um, something. Um, again, those are a little bit harder to um, assess values for, make any um, good deciding factors, knowing what we know about youth thyroid six syndrome. Um, but maybe that's a patient that they actually do just have um, delayed recovery, still some, maybe some vasoplegia. And instead of using that moderate dose vasopressor um, during the stabilization phase and continuing to c contribute hidden fluids, you know, maybe we can switch them over and do some oral midodrine. I like that. Now, the evacuation phase. You know, Brittany Bissell had a great ACC po ACCP poster kind of detailing pharmacist involvement in diuresis and and basically detailing that it's it's limited and a few centers truly have an actual de-resuscitation protocol. So do we have great evidence on how to de-resuscitate or is it just that we know we need to and maybe not necessarily we don't necessarily know how to? Yeah, I don't think I don't think you can find an individual other than myself or Brittany that hates fluids any more than we do. Um, I actually think her her PhD dissertation recently was looking at active diuresis while patients were still in active shock, like on vasopressors, um, and really just showing that it is actually safe to diurese folks, even though they're you know they got a map of sixty and they're on vasopressors, um, because it's not as long as it's not a fluid deficiency, um, then you're fine. Um, but I think. You know, what do we know about de-resuscitation? Um, I think it goes back to the question, are we smarter than the average fifth grader? Um, you know, fifth, they are great at telling us if an object is wet or dry, but us, very educated, seasoned ICU practitioners, we, are, we cannot tell you if a patient is wet or dry. We've got lots of data saying hypo, hypervolemia is bad. We've got some data, you know, obviously saying hypovolemia is bad. Um, targeting euvolemia sounds you know, perfect in a utopic ICU, but we have no idea how to target what that is. 
Um, so I think, to, I think to your question, we don't have great evidence on how to de-resuscitate. Um, there's some studies that are up and coming that hopefully will help tell us some of that. But I, I do think we have some good information to suggest that we at least need to start um, evacuating or diuresing. Um, we're actually in the process now, and I have a student of mine that will be at mid-year um, looking at the pharmacist's role in the evacuation phase, starting diuretics, stopping them, optimizing the dose, et cetera. Are they going to have a, a poster there? Oh, uh, yeah, they're going to have a poster. Sorry, quick um, quick plug. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was you. Everyone, everyone <laughs> listening is going to need to go to go check this out after listening to this. Get some some real world kind of look into, you know, how to be appropriate stewards of, of fluid here. Now, we were we were talking about the Rose model and that um, your that 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 specific model really focused on septic patients, but that you know you believe that that could be extrapolated beyond, and you kind of published a paper with some colleagues saying exactly that in the Journal of Pharmacy Practice. You know, the, you know, the paper is kind of discussing fluid stewardship in critical illness. Um, so tell us kind of a little bit more about this and really the paper's overall purpose. Oh, uh, yeah. So it was, um, it was myself and the other UGAC3 folks. And we basically superimposed the ROSE model um, and the five rights of medication administration or medication safety. Um, and we developed a construct of fluid stewardship. We adapted it to just four rights of, of medication administration um, in such a way so that it's not just for septic patients, but all ICU patients. Um, we specifically highlighted problems with fluid administration, some potential solutions, um, and then even areas of research that are needed in each of those areas. Um, and, you know, like you said, in pharmacy practice, so we took a particular focus on what role the pharmacist could play um, at the bedside as a fluid steward. It's a, I think it's a really, really great paper. And I think, you know, the, I really like the title, A Call to Action. And I think the, how I kind of interpreted that as, as the reader of that is that we need to be thinking of fluids as medications. And until we do that, I think we're kind of going to kind of continue to have problems with this. Um, so you mentioned it was kind of a, a play off of the um, five rights of medication administration. How did you, did you have to adapt it? Um, or I guess why, why does yours have four? Uh, yeah, actually, that's a funny story. So originally we tried to adopt the same five rights of medication administration and kind of play it, um, you know, right off of that to, as a mirror. Um, but when we submitted it for publication, the peer reviewers um, said that the right dose and the right time were too similar. Um, so, I mean, we were really trying to talk about the rate you give fluids and for the duration you give fluids, um, but cumulatively, at what rate and, at w and for how long, collectively, that comes together to be the right dose. Um, so we eliminated the right time and we just kind of combined both of those into one. So right patient and then right drug. So right drug, let's, let's pause here for a second because I think that we could probably talk about this specific issue itself for hours. But let's kind of briefly 
discuss these types of fluids and maybe let's do like a compare and contrast of you know balanced solutions versus the you know the isotonic solutions yeah so i mean your balanced solutions are isotonic um they're just not <laughs> extremely acidic salt water right hyperchloremic so um, your balanced solution being plasmalite, lactated ringers, um, and then we'll just say, I don't want to use the term normal saline. I think it's very abnormal, but we'll call it isotonic saline. No, I like that. Let's say um, let's say abnormal saline. I think kind of moving forward, that's what we're going to refer to it as on this <laughs> podcast. We're going we're gonna to get the good name out there. There's nothing normal about it. So abnormal saline. Yeah, so saline, I mean, the marketing scheme, you know, way back in the day when it first came out, it is normal in that it is isotonic. Um, you know, it's got an osmolarity of 308, which is pretty close to normal. The problem is that's the only thing normal, nothing else. Um, it's got a ridiculous amount of chloride, which gives it a pH of 5.3. You know, it's extremely acidic. Um, all the studies that compare balanced solution to, to isotonic saline, um, you know, we talk about the pH and the hyperchloremia a lot. Um, balanced solutions, I think, you know, even though we're trying to push more for that, I see that a lot of our providers are scared to because they have potassium and you're giving a lot of times you're given, um, you're trying to give fluids to patients that either have an AKI, they're slightly oliguric, or maybe even hyperkalemic. Um, and they're, you know, so they're concerned with giving them fluids that have potassium in it. Um, again, the pH is a big difference. Um, your balanced solutions are going to have some type of buffer, whether it's, um, acetate, lactate, um, typically, I mean, you know, as long as you have a functional liver, you're going to convert that to bicarb pretty readily. Um, so, and I just always argue, unless they have, you know, end stage liver disease, um, or we're giving them 12 liters at a time, then I don't think we have to worry about, um, you know, a lactate accumulation in a, um, but just because you're giving somebody a lot, um, you know, lactated ringers, et cetera. I hope everyone could feel the passion in your in your voice and tone when you started <laughs> talking about abnormal saline, because I certainly felt it here. Now, you you mentioned plasmalite and lactated ringers. So what's kind of we don't have plasmalite, you know, at my institution. We do have lactated ringers. Kind of what's the what's the difference between those two? Um, they do, they both use a little bit of a different buffering system. Um, otherwise, I would say they're pretty much close. Again, the only things, um, the arguments or the conversations that we have on rounds, um, lactated ringers has four milliequivalents per liter of potassium and plasmalite has five milliequivalents per liter. Um, but otherwise, just the benefit that balanced crystalloids offer over isotonic or abnormal saline I think you could probably argue LR or plasmalite similar. Um, you know, no no one reason to choose one over the other, with the exception of cost. Um, I think plasmalite's a little bit more expensive than than lactated ringers, so um, I think you're perfectly fine to choose either or. But you know, if you're in favor of watching your pharmacy budgets, you can spend it on spend your dollars on factors or um, you know, or Presidex or vasopressin. You know, then that might be a good target. Now, if, if we can't avoid using abnormal saline all the time for, for one we, reason or another, you know, should we just be watching like chloride and bicarb levels or maybe monitoring the pH or, you know, 
is the harm irrespective of those levels, and we really need to be working at proactively reducing and trying to eliminate its use? Um, yeah, so, I mean, I definitely, I mean, the only, the only indication that I could tell you that isotonic saline or abnormal saline is actually the right choice is if a patient has a hypochloremic metabolic alkalosis. So if you've got a patient that presents, you know, they've been vomiting profusely for three days prior to arrival, um, then maybe they're a good candidate for isotonic saline. Um, otherwise, I mean, you know, there's a reason it's called the Dead Sea. Um, so I try to use balanced crystalloids at all costs. Um, where can you do that proactively, despite how much I preach? Um, it's really hard to do. And I think it's just because of availability. Um, you know, I see the physicians, you know, they, they order normal saline all the time, even though they prefer balanced crystalloid. And I ask them why, oh, because we have it sitting right here. You know, it's in the stock room. Um, so I think just the sheer availability, just because this is like newer up and coming information, I think. Um, but I mean, even, even the sepsis protocol that I, um, that I've recently done for our emergency um, department, when you look at our sepsis order set and it says fluid resuscitation, I have it spelt 30 mLs per kilo, lactated ringers, 30 mLs per kilo, plasma light, and then I have 30 mLs per kilo NS, right? So I have it written very small. It's like the hardest box to find to check um, <laughs> specifically so that I can discourage its use. You're helping people help themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so right patient, right drug, and the right route. So you know, one thing that stands out for me is that it is, and we're talking about, you know, kind of focusing here on maintenance IV fluids, that is taking into account your, you know, total, you know, water requirements, you know, total fluid requirements. But do you believe kind of the new, and when I say new, I'm talking the last 10 to 15 years, kind of emphasis on early enteral nutrition and getting patients to receive their goal nutrition, whether that's enteral, orally, et cetera, I think that may reduce, hopefully reduce the need for these maintenance IV fluids? Man, yeah. I mean, when we talk about the right route, we certainly focus um, on um, a lot on maintenance IV fluids. Some of our data suggests that DCing maintenance IV fluids is one of the most common interventions um, for fluid stewardship of, for the pharmacist. Um, but man, focusing on early nutrition, I cannot express how important that is. Um, so, so often um, our providers want to start patients on maintenance fluids, and I'll ask them very directly, you know, can you tell me what the clinical indication is for this, for this therapy? You know, I'm the pharmacist, I'm the drug expert, fluids are drugs, so what is the clinical indication for this fluid so that I, as the drug expert, can assess efficacy for this treatment? And so often I hear, oh, well, the, you know, the, the patient, I, I want to keep them on maintenance fluids until they're tolerating their feeds at goal. And maybe they're on a small dose of pressors or maybe they're not and they just want to wait 24 to 48 hours to start you know, their feeds and then they want to advance their feeds only six, every six, 12 hours. And so that just continues to prolong the process for how long it takes to get to goal feeds. So the quicker we can feed them, the quicker we can get them to goal feeds at least, would be at least one great justification for me to stop maintenance fluids kind of one intervention having really positive downstream effects kind of in multiple areas. Yeah, really, really good thing. So right patient, right drug, right route. 
And now right dose, it's kind of the last thing emphasized and kind of maybe argue that you, you save the most important for last because, you know, and we're not going to get into the trials and the limitations that I know are inherently within them, but, you know, clinical trials comparing, you know, balanced and hyperchloremic fluids have had some mixed results, but the literature seems to have a true consensus that being fluid overloaded leads to worse outcomes. So what do you mean by right dose? Um, I think... A lot of those studies, and again, I, I won't get into all the mix, you know, all the details, but um, a lot of those, just their inclusion criteria, just at baseline, they already received a decent amount of fluids in the emergency department before they were ever enrolled in the study. Um, but I think right dose really focuses on when you want to give someone some fluids, don't just give them a liter or don't just give them two liters, you know, some arbitrary, relatively large amount. Start with a if you can't do volume responsiveness um, to assess, then just give them small aliquots, you know, 250 mLs at a time. Um, if they liked it and they improved and you are starting to um, progress and achieve some of your goals, then maybe give another 250. Um, otherwise, you know, they, they may not need it. So at the right dose, specifically for bolusing, use your volume responsiveness assessments um, in your favor. But, you know, right dose doesn't only a small to, uh, apply to boluses. Um, you know, I'm a stickler, again, just like antibiotic stewardship. I am a, I'm very keen on putting in stop dates and stop times specifically for fluids. You want to give fluids, you want to do gentle hydration at, you know, two, 250 an hour, 100 an hour, whatever it is. Okay, well, how long do you want to do that for a total of how much volume? And I will specifically put in how much, you know, volume or for what duration of time. So that it's not one of those George Foreman approaches, you know, just set it and forget it. Um, I think it was something I alluded to earlier when we're on rounds. I think it's very important not to just um, list an intervention as a goal today, um, but a specific goal of, you know, we're going to target a certain urine output per hour, or we want to target a certain, um, you know, tar target a certain urine output target a net negative balance for that day, um, something along those lines so that you have a specific goal in mind, not just one therapy or one dose of something, and then you don't reassess for 24 hours. Because at that point, all you're doing is putting yourself behind the eight ball. Well, and that's an intervention with that end goal. And then if you don't reach that, right, the team will hopefully intervene rather than just, you know, allow that to keep going. I think that's that's a really good point. And, and you're you know, you and your um, UGA C3 colleagues, this paper does such a really great job of describing why it's so important to kind of manage a patient's volume status and um, realistically kind of how to do it. So I really encourage everyone to read this paper. It'll definitely get um, sent out and it'll, it'll, of course, be kind of on the, the reference list along with a lot of the other studies that we've that we've talked about. Now, what are some examples of interventions that, you know, pharmacists or just other members of the multidisciplinary team could make that fall within a specific category of the four rights you described? Because let me explain just a little bit, because I think, you know, I imagine most of us make some sort of interventions related to fluid, but I think we might not have a great idea of where that kind of falls in the um, spectrum of, you know, the, the four rights. Oh, uh, yeah. So, I mean, lots of examples of, 
you know, the types of interventions um, that we make related to the four patient rights um, of fluid stewardship, um, you know, stopping maintenance. Out, so if you think about the right patient, um, does the patient need fluids? Yes or no. And does that mean, does that mean enteral fluid? You know, can you be giving them free water in their um, NG tube or OG tube, you know, whatever access you have? Um, do they need do they need IV fluids? Do those fluids need to be bolus? Do they need to be maintenance? Um, do they need albumin? Do we need to stop giving them albumin? Um, so is it is this the right patient to either give drug give fluids or to stop giving fluids? And so I mean it's very common on rounds that I will recommend um, that we hook the patient up to the flow track, um, or I'll go on rounds and say, hey, you know, I went and looked at their um, A line, I, you know, I looked at their waveform, their pulse pressure variation says that. They don't need fluids, so can we stop the, you know, the 500 cc bolus of saline times three that we just put in 20 minutes ago? Um, for the right drug, um, for the right drug, it's really easy to talk about. Um, you know, I feel like we've talked mostly about bolus fluids, um, but right drug. I mean, it goes down. You know, they're on a norepi infusion, and the norepi can be in D5 or it can be in saline. You know, if the patient has ARDS and I'm trying to be very conservative with fluids, then I'm going to want to concentrate that norepi and I'm going to want to get rid of the D5 and just put it in saline because the D5, you know, it's extremely hypotonic. So it's going to um, leak from their from their vasculature extremely quickly um, and, you know, contribute heavily to their third spacing. Um Bicarb, uh, bicarb is a big one. I think I, I think I mentioned earlier, Vank and bicarb were the two largest contributors of hidden fluids. Um, so I've gotten to the point where all of the, anytime I put a patient on a bicarb infusion, instead of doing three amps and a liter of um, sterile water or three amps and a liter of D5, I just do three amps in an empty bag um, and run it at, you know, depending on how much bicarb you want to give them, anywhere from 15 to 20 to 25 cc's an hour significantly less than 125 an hour that gives them the same amount of bicarb. And then I can give them actual crystalloid separately. So I have two different, um, you know, treatment strategies that I'm using. Um, right drug, maybe, maybe fluids isn't the right drug. Maybe diuretics is the right drug. So very commonly, you know, you guys um, in practice, at, you know, on rounds, you're initiating diuretics. Maybe you're stopping diuretics. Uh, maybe you're, um, changing the dose of the diet, you know, that would go into right dose, but change, so going into right dose, things that I frequently change, you know, maybe changing the dose of the diuretics, even changing the timing that the diuretics are given in relation to each other. Um, some would argue that data is a little bit controversial, but something that, at least in my practice, I still do. Um, again, relating to the right dose, I think something that comes up a lot is when we do decide to give albumin to folks. Um, people don't really, you know, your rationale for giving albumin is I want to give something to mobilize their um, third space fluid. So you don't want to give them fluid. You want to, you know, adjust your oncotic pressure to pull the fluid back intravascular, yet they still choose to give 5% albumin. And so, you know, being very conscious when you see albumin order coming through, what is the goal? What's the intention of giving the albumin? Is it for fluid or is it for colloid? Because if it's strictly for colloid and mobilizing fluid, then you know, I would argue you probably want to just use 25% because albumin is nothing more than protein dissolved in abnormal saline. 
Um, and then right route, I think right route's the only other one that um, we haven't, that I haven't mentioned. And I think a bit huge convert, you know, thinking about hidden fluids, converting stuff from IV to PO, um, you know, whether that's some antibiotics, I mentioned Midodrin earlier with pressors. Um, I tend to use, um, or try to at least use clonidine, um, you know, to try to get folks off Presidex when we're having trouble. Um, you know, getting folks off of TPN or Clinamix, um, or again, you know, switching their um, maintenance fluid to enteral fluid, or if the patient's being, you know, they request five cups of ice chips every hour, they're probably getting enough volitional intake that I can justify stopping their maintenance fluids also. Yeah, I'd agree. Sorry, with that, that was probably a little bit more cumbersome than you were looking for. No, I like that. No, it's, I mean, those are all really important points. Not, not cumbersome at all. Now, fluid stewardship and kind of, you know, managing fluids, I think you'd probably agree that it's in the early phases of, of being researched and kind of, um, you know, getting, getting all of that information out. Now, there's a really good um, table in your paper that talks about kind of future directions and, and questions that the research needs to answer. Now, the list is long, but what would you say are some of the some of the most important or critical questions that you know, a lot of the researchers here thinking um, can get their you know IRB proposal up and going? Man, I, I think the I think the volume of fluids that we give, you know, again, what every, almost everything we've talked about has been related to fluids and sepsis, and that's great. Sepsis is extremely prevalent. It'll definitely help you get a uh, you know, a large number of patients included in your studies. But when you're thinking about either the dose of, you know, 30 mLs per kilo isn't really justified anywhere. Um, should it be, you know, ideal adjusted total body weight, you know, which fluid should we give? So kind of the argument that Clover's, um, Clover's is looking for, I think the classic trial, all these conservative approaches to sepsis resuscitation. Um, I think, um, when you talk about the right drug, you know, we talk about balanced, balanced crystalloids versus abnormal saline for septic patients or for all comers to the ICU. But what about very specific patient populations, um, you know, patients that come in with, with DKA? Can I give them one or two liters of LR instead of, instead of saline? Um, so I think there's just so many different disease states that probably do warrant um, appropriate um, either resuscitation or some degree of fluid therapy. Um, and so all of those are very good specific subsets or cohorts of patients um, that would produce great data, you know, to drive some of those decisions. Now, I know fluids, kind of fluid responsiveness, fluid stewardship, these areas are getting, you know, researched more. And I, I, I heard you mention the Clovers trial, and I think all of us who hopefully have listened to the, to the sepsis episode of this remembers Alex Flannery talking about that as well. But what are some, what are some um, that and maybe other trials that we should be keeping our eyes open for that may answer some of these, some of these questions that you just talked about? Yeah, there's lots of, lots of questions. There are several studies that are, um, like, I think TopMath and Mimosa, um, they were both uh, some preliminary trials um, looking at isotonic versus hypotonic um, maintenance fluids in surgical patients. Um, you mentioned Clover's. Uh, Radar 2 should be coming soon, um, probably early to mid-next year, and that's early. That's going to be um, – that's, that's focusing on de-resuscitation after resuscitation. 
Um, there's some good work, um, probably some good stuff coming out from the volume chasers group. Um, recently, the fade study, so um, looking at al albumin to um, um, furosemide and albumin to diuresis edema, uh, then the RIFS trial. Um, so there, there's some up and coming ones for sure. And I heard you say the trial called Mimosa. The fact that that's not a vitamin C research study, researchers really dropped the ball there. How how is orange juice? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? How is vitamin C not the not a not a part of the Mimosa study? What a what a miss there. Um, I I appreciate though that that all the studies you named have acronyms because so I used to think, and I still maybe believe this a little bit that if if your study has an acronym right people think it's just that much more important <laughs> my and my, it's definitely easier for me to remember and quote you know on rounds and that just makes it that much easier to convince someone to do something differently now what are you've you've just hit us with so many great tips tricks and and facts um throughout this episode but what are what are points that you kind of want to re-emphasize or highlight that we make sure that all of us remember and then hopefully kind of apply to patients present and future coming into the ICU? Um, I think one of the most critical things to just really embrace and what I really try to tell the students um, and residents, fluids are drugs, pharmacists are drug experts. I think pharmacy school, you know, general education probably doesn't do a great job of educating um, pharmacists on, on the on the rationale or the use of fluids, especially not fluid stewardship, um, outside the realm of, at least I can speak for myself, you know, when I learned about fluids, it was all in relation to um, parenteral nutrition and electrolytes. Um, so really embracing that fluids are drugs and that we are supposed to, you know, be the experts in, the, in that field. Um, hidden fluids are, I mean, such a top contender for, um, you know, a huge, um, uh, they, they contribute so much to overall fluid administered in a patient's ICU stay. So really being diligent and at least uh, at least uh, accounting for the, all the hidden fluids that we give patients. Um, the other thing that I really challenge folks with, um, you know, when you're verifying orders or putting orders in, the computer system has great artificial intelligence um, to do all of your ADRs. You know, they screen all the drugs against the patient's data, their allergies, um, drug drug interactions, but nothing comes up with related to fluids, and so that's the one drug that you that we have to verify or that we are responsible for that we have to go dig around and actually make educated decisions on that just takes a little bit more work on our part, um, you know. But I think you know that's that's we we are the interface between the drug and the patient because there is no um, you know automated platform or interface that does that for us. And the only other thing I would say, I think, you know, fluid stewardship, like you said, it's kind of newer and up and coming, um, but it's a great way to give pharmacists more purpose and more, you know, specific intentions when they go into a patient's room, um, evaluate data in real time. Um, and I think it's a great role in the future for pharmacists to expand the range of the clinical services we provide, and even just more generically speaking, the types um, and vastness, the variety of recommendations that we make on rounds giving pharmacists more tools, more value. We are here for that. Um, so those are, those are really, really awesome. You know, Anthony, 
I really appreciate it. You know, you're the best. You definitely taught us a lot and gave us great tools for fluid stewardship. You know, a lot of them that, you know, we might or probably won't find in textbooks. Now, where can the listeners find you? Are you active at all on social media? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at I am a Hawkins. Um, and probably more easy than that, you can find our UGA uh, C3 group on Twitter at UGA C3. Um, so please send us a follow. And, you know, a lot of times we'll give at least a little bit of heads up on what's coming up on upcoming um, meetings and some of our more recent data that, that we're trying to push out and, you know, really focusing on, on fluid stewardship. Yeah, I completely agree. Great, great follows on, on both accounts. High, high recommendation from me. Um, well, thanks, Anthony. You know, another, another really huge thank you to, to Anthony Hawkins kind of for taking the time to join us today. You know, people may not know, but, you know, Anthony's not only a really great friend, but an incredible mentor. You know, he's, he teaches everybody from students and residents to, to other pharmacists. And I know I'm not the only person who definitely wouldn't be there without a lot of his help. So it's, it was really great, you know, talking to him and working with him. He's just the absolute best. I also want to give a, a massive thank you, you know, to you, the listeners. You know, this podcast definitely does not exist without you. So please, as always, um, send me any feedback, both positive and negative, as well as any guest or topic ideas um, at Twitter or Instagram, um, at Pharmacy2Dose, that's T-O-2Dose, or via email, PharmacyToDose at gmail.com. And on our website, pharmacytodose.com, you'll find show notes that include background reading, guidelines, these articles that we kind of reference in the discussion, and much, much more. And honestly, you know, everyone listening, I'd, I'd love to hear from each and every one of you. But until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast.